the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning again, San Diego Saints. Welcome back. We are continuing on our series uh, of a book entitled Homecoming. How the mystery of one new, uh, I'm sorry, how the mystery of the new covenant brings both Jew and Gentile back to Abba Father. And this book was released last year, and we've been going through um, this unique uh, movement, if you will, of Jew and Gentile uh, coming together and acknowledging what they have in common. Um, who is their mutual father? Who is their uh, mutual older brother, Yeshua HaMashiach, as his name is known in Hebrew circles, and we know him as Jesus Christ, uh, the Son of God, the Anointed One, our Deliverer. And the question today is, I'm going to try to pick this up a little bit and just insert this because people are asking me, well, why is one new man so significant? You know, oftentimes the Gentiles, quite honestly, don't really pay all that much attention to uh, what God is doing um, with the Messianic community. And the Messianic community is um, trying to figure out how they can maintain their identity without assimilating um, to a Gentile culture that is obviously larger and um, sometimes appears to them as being overwhelming, and they don't uh, choose to uh, lose their um, Jewish identity, which they're not supposed to. They're supposed to keep their Jewish identity. Um, And the question is, how do Gentiles and Jews come together? Because that's what what God's plan is. his plan is to build, and this is what we've been talking about last week, uh, a building, a construction building, if you will, a construction project. And um, this construction project is referred to in Ephesians chapter 2. And we, when you read the book of Ephesians, you really do need to um, read it all the way through because when you read it in a disconnected or disjointed way, really doesn't have the um, the connective tissue, if you will, that's intended. And so one chapter builds upon the previous one. And so what we titled this show is, Why is one, I'm sorry, why is Satan so afraid of one new man in Abba Father? Why is he fearful of that occurring? Um, what does that appear to him like? Um, what is that? Is it an om- ominous threat to, to him? And if so, why? So if God's building something, he has a purpose in it. And um, so we're going to talk really briefly about this project, construction project that God is um, building. And This chapter 2 is significant because it says, in essence, 
there are two groups of people, and we talked about this last week. We ended our show last week talking about uh, the references in John chapter 10, um, especially in verse 16 and verse 27 through 29, that um, there are two flocks of sheep but one shepherd. And what's happening is that God is bringing both of those flocks together. And uh, if you want to hear about what that looks like and um, what does that sound like and why is God doing that, I just refer you to last week's show. Uh, You can go on KPRZ uh, to the podcast um, section and then just click on last week's show. Um, And we're going to pick it up here talking about this construction project um, which is in essence bringing these two groups together just like what we saw with the two uh, herds of sheep last week but with one shepherd. So Ephesians chapter 2 basically um, points out that we Gentiles were a group of people and if you read the New King James, um, it starting at verse 11, it says, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. So let me translate that. <laughs> um, I'm going to go over to the complete Jewish Bible. I think it explains it a little bit better. In uh, Ephesians, this is by uh, David Stearns the complete Jewish Bible. Uh, I'm reading from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. It says, Therefore, uh, Paul's writing to Gentiles in the church of Ephesus. He says, Therefore, remember your former, F-O-M-E-R, your former state, you Gentiles by birth. You were called the uncircumcised by those who merely because of an operation on their flesh, in other words, the circumcision, are called the circumcised. Um, at that time, you had no Messiah. You didn't have a deliverer. You didn't have an anointed one. You had no Savior. And you were estranged from the national life of Israel. Um, you were foreigners to the covenants embodying God's promise to mankind. You were in this world without hope, and without God. Okay, so that's verse 11 and verse 12. So that pretty much describes um, who we were as a group and as individuals before we came to know the Lord. But look at this next verse. I'm reading again from the Complete Jewish Bible, Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse 13. But now you who were once far off have been brought near through the shedding of the Messiah's blood. That's the blood of Jesus. You who were once, I'm going to read it again, you were once far off, have now been brought near through the shedding of Messiah's blood. For he himself is our shalom. This is verse 14. Shalom meaning peace in Hebrew. For he himself is our shalom. And he has made both one and has broken down the Mitzah, which is the wall that divides us. I'll read that for you in the New King James. Um, this would be verse 14. Let me go over to that real quickly. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. And I'm going to go back to... Verse 15 in the complete Jewish Bible. Um, how was that done? I'm, I'm, that's just me adding this as editorial. How was that done? By destroying in his own body the enmity occasioned by the Torah with its commands set forth in the form of ordinances. He did this in order to create in union with himself from the two groups, listen, from the two groups, a single new humanity, and thus make shalom, or peace, 
Uh, to what end? I'm asking that editorially right now. In, to what end? In order to reconcile, and in order to reconcile to God both in a single body, in other words, bring both groups together, reconciled, in a single body by being executed on the stake, by being crucified on the cross, as a criminal, and thus in himself killing that enmity. So let me read it again in the New King James. This is verse 14 out of Ephesians 2. For he himself is our peace, who has made both, meaning what both might, both groups, the Gentiles and the Messianic believers, the Jews, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man, the Jewish Bible says one new humanity, same idea, one new man from the two, thus making peace. And then verse 16, this is, explains why. And that he might reconcile them both, both groups, to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. So, as we look at this construction project, it's like, how do you bring these two groups together? How does this happen? Verse 17, Ephesians 2 in the New King James, And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. This is verse 18. Now check out the three prepositions. For through him, referring to Yeshua, Jesus, we both have access by one spirit, that's a capital S on spirit, that's the Holy Spirit. So for through him, that's the first preposition, we both have access by one spirit, here's the third preposition, to the Father. That's the point. That's why Yeshua came to earth, was to reconcile us back to the Father. And we talked a, a lot about this in previous shows. I just refer you briefly to Second uh, Corinthians uh, chapter 5. Um, where at the end of chapter 5, starting at about verse 17, uh, read all that to the end up to verse 21 in Second Corinthians chapter 5 and count how many times the word reconciliation uh, shows up. I think the last time we talked about that in the sh- earlier show was five times. Reconciliation. Jesus came to reconcile us who were separated from the Father. He came to reconcile us back to the Father. And that's what we just wrote, read in Ephesians chapter 2. And so, and also we studied in last week's show, 2 Corinthians 6.16, 6, um, through the end, through verse 18, and talking about that God was basically informing us that we were a temple of the living God in whom God was going to dwell. And when he shows up to live not with us, but in us, that's in our last week's show, he, as far as relationship, was going to solidify that he is our father. Where does it say that? Um, he says, I will dwell in them. This is verse 16 of Second Corinthians um, 6. For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk amongst them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore... Come out from amongst them and be separate, says the Lord. This is verse 17. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. Now check out the relationship. We're inviting God to come in and indwell us like we talked about last week. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And then we finished up last week with 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Therefore, having these promises, let us, beloved, therefore cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So let's go over. That's a cleansing process. We talked about that last week. And if God's going to come in and indwell us, if the goal is union with God, this Judeo-Christian journey, 
And we talked last week about the goal is not a journey to a, to a location from earth over to heaven. That's not the goal. The Bible never says it's the goal, not even once. It doesn't even hint at it. The goal is union with God. Now, that changes everything. It changes how we live. It changes our perspective. It changes how we look at things. It changes how we uh, decide whether we're going to commit ourselves to this because union with God. But it's everywhere. It's, it's everywhere. It's in the four chapters of John, John 14, John 15, John 16, John 17. Read those four chapters. It's all about union with God, in God, God in us, and, and us in God. Not just Jesus, not just the Holy Spirit, but Jesus and the Holy Spirit are pointing to the ultimate union with God is the Father. Father God is the goal. Union with God. All elements of the Godhead, but ending with the Father. He is the objective. He is the target, if you will. And so getting back to this question, why is Satan so fearful of this one new man of Jew and Gentile coming together, recognizing that they have a mutual father, recognizing also that they have a mutual enemy, Satan, who wants to keep Jew and Gentile separated, divided. And here's the context of when you read Ephesians chapter 2, that Jesus came to knock down that middle wall of separation. And he did it in order to reconcile to God both groups in a single body by being crucified on a stake, executed on a stake as a criminal, and thus in himself, he, Jesus, Yeshua, killed that enmity of separation. But he's bringing us back to God. That's what we lost in Genesis chapter 3. We lost our relationship with God. We didn't lose heaven. We lost our relationship with our Father. Now check this out. In verse 17 out of the um, complete Jewish Bible of Ephesians chapter 2, and when he came, talking about Jesus, Yeshua, he announced as good news, Shalom to you, peace to you, far off, and shalom to the to you, who though who are those nearby. In other words, to both groups. News that through him, referring to Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That's the point. That's the target. That's the whole entire goal. So check out verse 19 in Ephesians chapter 2. So then you are no longer foreigners, talking about Gentiles now and strangers. On the contrary, you are fellow citizens with God's people, talking about the Jews, and members of God's family. I'm going to read that in um, the New King James Version, 2.19. Here we are. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, referring to Gentiles before we knew Christ, but your fellow citizens with the saints. Now, get this, and members of the household of God. So we're now citizens, fellow citizens, with the people of the promise of the covenants, the Jews, but now also we are members of the household of God as well. Look at verse 20 of Ephesians 2. Having been built on the foundation... Okay, now this is the construction project. This is what I want you to, to listen to. If, we're, if God is building something with a, with a divine blueprint, this building is going to house God at some place, at some time. That's the point of building this. So looking at verse 20 in New King James of Ephesians chapter 2, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Well, guess what? The apostles and the prophets were Jewish. Jesus Christ himself, Yeshua HaMashiach, being the chief, listen, cornerstone. That's what you need when you begin to build a building. So we have a foundation, and now we part as part of that foundation, Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone, holding the foundation, the building together at its base. 
Look at verse 21. In whom the whole building, listen carefully, is being fitted together. You talk, See what I'm talking about? God's building a construction project here of a building in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into what? A holy temple in the Lord. Not of the Lord or with the Lord. It says in the Lord. That's more, more intimate and profound and deep. And the last one is verse 22. This is the last verse of uh, Ephesians chapter 2. In whom you are being built together. Built, what does that mean? Both groups. Being built together for a dwelling place of God. Wow. God wants to indwell us. That's what we talked about last week when we studied John chapter 17. Looking at uh, John 17, uh, 20 through 24. In whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now let me read that to you in the complete Jewish Bible. Look at, uh, starting at verse uh, 2.20, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. This is out of the complete Jewish Bible from David Stearns. You have been built on the foundation of the emissaries and the prophets, with the cornerstone being Yeshua the Messiah himself. Verse 21. In union with him, the whole building is held together, and it is growing into a holy temple in union with the Lord. You see what I talked said earlier? What is the goal of the Judeo-Christian walk? It's not dying and going to a place. It's union with God, in God, living together in God, where God is living also simultaneously in us. Where'd you get that? Last week's show, John uh, chapter 17. Check out verses uh, 3 of John 17, and then go on over to verses 20 through 24. That explains this entire building project and what is the goal. Verse 22, yes, in union with him, you yourselves are being built together, again, the two groups, into a spiritual dwelling place for God. There's an exclamation point there. It's kind of like, you guys, take, take note, pay attention, listen to what God is building here. Okay, now the title of this show is Why is Satan uh, So Afraid of One New Man Coming Together of Jew and Gentile in Abba Father? Well, all of a sudden, if people are beginning to realize that this movement of Jew and Gentile together is is a building project constructed by the Father so that we can indwell him and he can indwell us, per John chapter 17, that is a game changer. Because if the goal is union with God, ask yourselves the question, would we live lives differently? Would we conduct our affairs differently. And this doesn't mean eventually one day we live with God. This is talking about in the right here moment. It's talking about in the right now time sequence. Now, immediately. Union with God. Deeper relationship with God. Knowing him relationally. Knowing him on a personal basis. Do you see how different this is from just the what we preach oftentimes, unfortunately, in Gentile circles that Jesus came to forgive us our sin? Yes, he did. So that we die, we get to go to a place. We miss the whole point. I'm not anti-heaven. I love heaven. But we're missing the whole point. That's not the reason Jesus came. He came to reconcile us back to the Father. So, We're going to uh, get into, in the next half hour after the break, the signaling of this uh, construction project and what message it sends to the enemy. What is that content of that message that causes fear and terror in the 
circles in the kingdom of the kingdom of darkness, of Satan and his one-third of his angels he took with him. Why are they so concerned about this building project? What has them up at night, so to speak? What are they going to do to try to keep basically Jew and Gentile separated through the religious spirit, through the Jezebel spirit, all the uh, tactics and weapons that he uses to keep us apart? Why is he so fearful? We're going to find out when we go to the next chapter, chapter 3 of Ephesians. We'll see you after the break. God bless. Welcome back, San Diego Saints. So, we're going to pick it up where we left off before the break, and we were talking about the title of this show is Why is Satan and his minions so afraid of Jew and Gentile coming together as one new man, or as the Jewish Bible says, one new humanity in Abba Father. And if you go to the next chapter of Ephesians, chapter 3, we start to see um, that there's some signaling going on between Father God and the enemy kingdom. And I'm going to just pick it up, read Ephesians chapter 3 at verse 8. Um, in the earlier verses in chapter 3, Paul talks a lot about this mystery of one new man. Um, it's The bottom line is in verse 6 of chapter 3, he says the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. That's the mystery fellow heirs, H-E-I-R-S, of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. I mean, that was pretty revolutionary thought uh, back then because, you know, Jesus taught the, and accurately that the gospel is to the Jew first. And um, you can see in the first century Acts church, especially in the earlier chapters of Acts, most of the believers, if not all, were Messianic believers. They were Jewish. They were Hebrews. And it wasn't until later when the gospel went out to the um, Greek speakers and the Westerners and the, the, uh, the non-circumcised, um, all of a sudden this giant wave, this giant tidal wave, a tsunami of believers is now flooding um, the, the Messianic community, and they don't know what to do about it. And so it'd be worth your while to read uh, the 15th chapter of the book of Acts to find out how they came together to say, how are we going to abide all of these newcomers who don't understand our Hebrew culture? They don't understand the covenant structure. They don't understand um, the background. But yet God wants to bring them in because when you think about it, it goes back to Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 where um, the father had repeated um, throughout that Abraham was to be the father of many nations. The people of the nations were called the goyim. Goyim is, means people of the nations in Hebrew. And we were the ultimate beneficiaries of all those covenants. And so um, that's part of the challenge of today, um, of preaching the gospel. We've got to include our Hebrew base. We have to include our Hebrew foundation. If we don't include that, and we just preach the last third of the of the Holy Bible, I'm sorry, people are not going to get it. They're not going to understand the context of what this uh, blueprint construction plan is all about. And they're going to end up thinking that, you know, using a construction example of backyard whatever uh pool construction, you might be looking at a cabana, or you might be looking at a, at a pool deck, or you might be looking at a, at a uh, what's the word they use in Hawaii, um, a lanai. But no, we're talking about the actual construction of an edifice in which God wants to dwell, and it's called, we're called the temple of God. So we talked about that um, in the first half of the show, and we cannot eliminate our Hebrew foundation in this construction project. But I do want to get to why Satan is so concerned um, about 
what happens when Jew and Gentile come together as a mutual group of children, of heirs, and we Gentiles as co-heirs, members of the household. Uh, Paul refers to us in Ephesians chapter 2 that we're um, part of the uh, commonwealth of Israel. Can you imagine? I think that's in um, verse 12. Yeah, it says uh, in Ephesians 2, it says, and, and at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Wow, how many people, when they come to know the Lord Jesus, who happens to be Jewish, he's the king of the Jews, he was the king of the Jews, he continues to be the king of the Jews, he'll always be in the future the king of the Jews. Um, when you, <laughs> you tell people, um, I just came to the Lord and now I'm a brand new Christian, what if you were to use the language instead as an example, uh, hypothetical, verse chapter 2, verse 12, I am... Now, not an alien anymore. I'm not a foreigner. I'm not a stranger. I'm now part of the family. But I'm also part of the commonwealth of Israel. Wow. Well, that makes a lot more sense when you start reading the the three chapters in Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 11, talking about these wild Gentile branches being grafted on to the root system, to the trunk, if you will, called Israel. And all of a sudden, uh, the tree begins to flourish. That's the point. If you talk to agronomists uh, back in Israel, they'll tell you why they take these wild uh, olive branches and graft them onto old trees, trees that are sometimes several hundred, if not thousands of years old. And they said you would not believe how much harvest comes, which, how much new fruit, overwhelmingly um, uh, increased amounts of fruit and harvest come when you do that process. Well, can you see the symbolism here of how how Father God, and through Jesus and by the Holy Spirit, wants to increase the bounty and the harvest in His in, the, in these last days of the of the people of God who know Him, of the family of God who understand their status. So it's very interesting to check out another motivation, probably the primary motivation of why this is so important to God. He's trying to send a signal from the kingdom of light and the kingdom of life to the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of death. And you see that in Ephesians chapter 3, looking, looking at uh, verse 8 through 10. I'll read it to you here out of the New King James. This is Paul writing, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach amongst the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden who create, in God, who created all things in Christ. Now, here it is, to the intent, this is the point, this is the purpose, this is the reason why all this is happening, to the intent that now, the manifold wisdom of God, another way of saying manifold is many-sided, that the many-sided wisdom of God might be made known by the church to who? Who's the manifold wisdom of God supposed to be made known to? It's supposed to be made by the church as an example to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Well, when you see principalities and powers, who's that talking about? I want to read that same verse in uh, the complete Jewish Bible. That's uh, verse... In chapter 3 of Ephesians, verse 8, to me, the least important of all God's people, this is Paul writing, was given the privilege of announcing to the Gentiles the good news of the Messiah's unfathomable riches and of letting everyone see how this secret plan, so Paul in New King James, it's translated mystery. Here in the complete Jewish Bible, it's explained as a secret plan, Same, same thing mystery, whether you talk mystery or secret plan, of letting everyone see how this secret plan is going to work out. This plan kept hidden for ages by God, the creator of everything. Look at verse 10. Who's who's this messaging for? Who's this signaling to? It's for the rulers and authorities in heaven to learn. Through the existence of the messianic community, how many-sided God's wisdom is. 
Well, I did some research, and I checked out this um, principalities and powers language. And again, in the same book of Ephesians, I went over and looked to where is this language used in another context, maybe in the same context, as we battle, as we engage in warfare, spiritual warfare. Take a look at uh, Ephesians 6, beginning at verse 12. I'm going to use the New King James on this. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, and against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts, which means armies, of wickedness in the heavenly places. This is the, talking about the second heavens. That's where, um, that's where Satan still has influence, still has power. And isn't this interesting in Ephesians 6.12? It's using pretty much the same reference of principalities and powers that was used in Ephesians 3. Verse 8 through 10. Jew and Gentile are coming together to display, put on display the many-sided wisdom of God about this construction project. God intends to live in his children, all of them. It doesn't matter whether they are of the Jewish background, the Jewish tribes, or whether they are the people of the nations, the Gentiles. He is preparing a construction project. He's engaged in it. And it's a signal to say, I'm going to end up, this is the Father signaling, messaging the enemy, I'm going to indwell them. I... They have access to me. They, my children have access to indwell me. We saw this in last week's show in John um, chapter 17. I'm going to indwell them, and they have access to me through the bridge of blood that Jesus provided. Where's that? Well, go back to John chapter 14. Jesus declares himself, I, John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Now listen to the next part of that sentence. No one comes to the Father but through me. See the access point? Do you see the bridge? And so that's the whole point of restoration and the restitution of all things. This gospel is a family reunion story. The prodigal children, through the obedient, sacrificial death of of Jesus on the cross, now have access to come back into the household of God. That's what what we just saw in Ephesians chapter 2. And you become part of something bigger called the commonwealth of Israel. And we explain to you, again, go to Romans chapter 9 and 10 and 11. Look at this whole process of grafting the wild branches back on to the olive tree, the root system, the trunk where you get your sustenance. But this is union of these two groups. And the purpose of this is for a restitution of our relationship, a reconciliation of a ruptured relationship that started in Genesis chapter 3. God is restoring all that. It has nothing to do with dying and going to heaven. My dying and going to heaven does not address the nature of the problem that God still has on his hands. The nature of the problem that God still has on his hands is called spiritual rebellion against the ways of God. Spiritual rebellion against the government of God. Spiritual rebellion against the kingdom or the government, if you will, of God. And that, unfortunately, is still residing in us even after we get saved. We have to admit it. Our spirit may have been instantaneously saved, but 
we have a <laughs> there are different parts to human beings there we are three part creatures and the part that we have to allow god to clean up is our soul man s o u l what is that our mind our thought process our will what do we what do we who do we want to choose to follow and be, become part of our emotions mind will and emotions that's the composition of who we are that's our nature that's our character well we're not going to get back into god's presence unless and until we allow him to start this building project and as we saw last week um it's an interesting verse here in ephesians chapter 4 it talks about um the body of Christ coming together, and we're going from infancy to maturity. We're going, coming from being children to um, adults in the Lord. And we're supposed to grow up. That's what chapter 4 in Ephesians is all about. We're supposed to grow up into the things of the Lord. Because Christ is the head of this, this construction project. He's the head of the whole body. And the whole body, the rest of us, is, are being joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, says Ephesians 4.16, according to the effect of working by which every part does its share. You have a role in this, as do I. And if we don't do our share, our contribution, the body suffers. You don't leave this all to the people of the ministry. We're the ministry. We're the emissaries. We're the ambassadors. Okay, our oikos is not something that our pastor, our rabbi is supposed to handle. We're supposed to handle that. We're part of the kingdom. And as we do our part, notice in the end of uh, Ephesians 4.16, it causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love, building of itself up in love. And so... Um, I want to read here, when we put on the new man, going down a little bit further in Ephesians chapter 4, this is what Satan is trying to prevent. In verse 20, let me get the context here. This is Paul writing um, to the new believers, the Gentiles. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, verse 22, that you put off concerning your former conduct. In other words, put off the old man in verse 22, the old man, what you were before you knew Christ, before you came into a relationship with Christ, and now you got to know the Holy Spirit, and now you are being brought into knowing the Father relationally. You're to put off the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts of the, of the old man and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's in verse 23. Now check this out. Verse 24. And that you put on the new man which was created according to God. And here's where Satan has his fear. Producing or in true righteousness, and holiness. Why is, he so fear- why is Satan so fearful of that? Because Satan's kingdom is the opposite of righteousness. The opposite of righteousness is lawlessness. True righteousness. Now notice it didn't say imputed righteousness. We get imputed righteousness when we first come to the Lord, and we need that blood covering while God does the process of sanctifying us, cleaning us up from the inside out. But the point of that is to go from imputed righteousness when we first get saved over to true righteousness. That's what verse 24 of Ephesians 4 is talking about. There's been a shift when you put on this one new man. You're not the same. You are being not transported. You are being transformed into the image of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're being transformed into his likeness. That's what the world is waiting for. And this doesn't happen by 
reciting in your brain the four spiritual laws when you get first get saved at the Billy Graham um, you know, revival tent meeting. Sorry, it doesn't. It begins the process, that initial salvation. You get your scholarship. It's an all-paid, you know, it's a free gift. We understand that part. We can, under, we can preach that to the unsaved very quickly. But what about afterwards? What's the point of the scholarship? A scholarship is a gift of an opportunity. It's the gift of a chance. And unfortunately, with the way we preach the gospel about it's all transportation from point A to point B, from point A being earth to point B being heaven, we basically, unfortunately, we Gentiles preach this as if we're a um, diploma, when it's not. It's not a diploma. It is a chance. It's a all-expenses-paid-for scholarship. Jesus paid all of the expenses on the cross. But you got to understand, we have to understand, what's the point of the scholarship? It's, it's in order to reconcile us back to, from the ruptured relationship of our Father with us as his children. That's a family issue. Fathers give us three things, and we see this in the Lord's Prayer. He gives us our identity, our status in the family, the recognition of who we are as children of the Most High Father, God, Creator. That's who we belong to because Jesus, through his obedient decision to be the perfect sacrifice as a bridge back to the Father— it's all about restored relationship because relationship, you ready for this, is eternal life. Eternal life is not golden streets with a silver mansion or golden mansion in heaven. That's not eternal life. I know we've been taught that. Whether you're a Catholic, whether you're a Protestant, I get we've been taught that. Guess what? It's a myth. It's not eternal life. Go back to John seventeen three. Please do this homework. Please do it. Check out the significance, the meaning, the definition of eternal life. John seventeen three. That they may know you, Father, the one true God, and and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Wow. Well, I mean, that's a mind-blowing proposition when you think about what we've been taught. We've been taught at best a partial gospel, at the best, but oftentimes a partial truth ends up being inaccurate. And if something's inaccurate, it's not the truth. It's not the complete truth. It's a partial truth at best, but partial truths, unfortunately, are they are disruptive to the whole counsel of God. They're a distraction. Partial truths are inaccuracies. And another word for inaccuracies is falsehood. We have to be careful that God is doing a, an amazing reformation in these days to try to clear up the fact that we have to have Bible for what we teach and preach and share and give our testimony about and testify towards. We are not preaching a complete, entire, whole, W-H-O-L-E, gospel message. For us to give the impression that Jesus is all about so that when I die, I get to go to heaven, misses the point entirely. And that's when a partial gospel becomes false. I'm sorry, I'm just going to say it. It's inaccurate, and thus it's false. Jesus came to restore. He's a God of restoration. He's a God of restitution. He's a God of reconciliation. All of those words have to do with 
our relationship with our Father. You guys, I can't tell you how important this is that we get this right. We've been taught myths. We've been taught fairy tales. Am I anti-heaven? No. I'm, when I die, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to stay there. The Scripture says, hey, that's a way station. We're supposed to come back when Jesus returns to collect and reconquer our material creation inheritance. That's a very different gospel. The Greeks preached the Gnostic gospel of the material creation was evil and only the spiritual world was was good. But the Greeks didn't write the gospel. The apostles and the prophets who were all Hebrews wrote the gospel. And unfortunately, this Jewish message, this Jewish foundation got watered down, got distorted, and the distraction began And unfortunately, we bought into a Greek Gnostic message as opposed to a Hebrew circular return message, restoration of family message. When we come back next week, we're going to talk about restoring this house that God's building with this foundation. We need to understand the Hebrew foundation to this gospel message. We don't understand the foundation. No one's going to buy a roof by itself. God bless you guys. Thank you for your attention. May you have many simple truth moments this week. See you next time. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's simple truth moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal His simple truth moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.